I get the privilege today to preach in our, the second or third, I guess, um, week of our Hosea series. Um, we're currently in a sermon series uh, called I Will Be Faithful to You, and it's a study in the book of Hosea. Now, before I get into that, I just want to share a really quick story. Uh, two weeks ago, I woke up after a four-day spiritual malaise where I had functionally lived as an atheist. Two weeks ago. Um, my wife and I were down in Colorado uh, for a, a church conference, ironically enough. And we went down a couple days early to see her family. Both of us have some family down in the Denver area. And uh, we, we flew down on a Friday. And I have kind of a, a long-standing back injury. And one of the things that aggravates that is travel and seating and heavy bags. And so we got to um, her aunt's house and that night, I, I had a, a back spasm to the point where I could barely stand up straight, and I spent the next four days either in a chair or in a bed with a heating pad and muscle relaxers. Uh, it was not fun. And unfortunately, when I am personally in pain, I withdraw and I isolate, and, and I don't want it to deal with anybody. And one of my go-to comforts when I have Wi-Fi is binge watching. That's my go-to. I don't want to deal with it. I just want to... I numb and I distract. Um, in those couple days, I was distracted away from my spiritual disciplines. I was probably more importantly distracted away from living in God's story. What I mean by that is God's scriptures give us a narrative that says the world is beautiful and meaningful and full of his presence and, and we live in a world where he loves us intensely and you can wake up in the morning trusting him, knowing him, being in relationship with him. That is God's story. That's the story I want to live in every day. But when I am binge-watching stuff and living in my own little walls of isolation, I take on the narrative of what I'm watching. And so I take on a new narrative of, of, of sexuality or of strength or of power or of wealth or what will make me happy. And those things begin to seep into my brain and I live out of that story. And as I continue to live out of that story, it doesn't bring me outward in love into God's presence. It brings me inward into fear and weakness. Now, underneath all of this was a faithfulness issue. I had quickly stepped out of life-giving relationship with the God that I love for a cheap substitute in order to seek cheap comfort. And I bring this up because I hope it is an accessible point to Hosea. And to make that point, we need to step backwards in time about 4,000 years to the message that God was giving his people in Hosea. Now, all of this starts, if I may go way, way back to a brief history of Israel's unfaithfulness. They probably didn't have Netflix, but I'm sure they sought comfort in other things. So <clears throat> uh, where Israel is at in their history is Israel started as a nation in the land of Egypt. They lived there for about 400 years. They grew from a family to a nation, and then they were brought out of Israel under Moses' leadership. God brings them out of Israel into the desert, and then they live there for a while. And then as they move into the land of Canaan, a man named Joshua takes over in, in leadership. And then when they're in Canaan, they kind of dissolve into this um, like tribal leadership, right? There's 12 family tribes. They each have some leadership, and then patriarchies within that, within that, within that. And then during that time period, God gives them some like safety bumpers where he sends judges to give them messages and correction and leadership. And then in that time period, that's when they begin looking at the nations around them and asking for a king. 
they begin moving away from a, a theocracy where God is their king, and they start saying, no, we want a man as our king. Their faithfulness begins to dwindle. And so God gives them a king, uh, famously a man named Saul. And then after Saul comes a man named David, who's probably even more well-known. And then after David is his son, Solomon. Now, unfortunately, um, Solomon, in Solomon's life, is where a noticeable decline of national worship and morality happens. It begins with the man Solomon. Towards the end of his life, uh, he had helped build an affluent nation on the backs of the Israelites, uh, as well as through pursuing unethical trade agreements with the nations around him that God had warned him not to do. He famously had 700 wives and 300 concubines. At the end of his life, his, he was full of hypocrisy and idolatry, one of the most famous kings of Israel. He handed this dissolving and decaying nation to his son, Rehoboam, who said, I'm going to be even worse than my father. My father whipped you with whips. I will whip you with scorpions. The nation splits under Rehoboam into two countries, um, Judah and Israel. And then uh, the Bible follows those those two nations as there's ups and downs, as each king either does one of two things, defends the faith and calls the people back to faithful righteousness, or the king is wooed by other religions and national pressures. And personally and nationally, there's a growing worship of false gods, evil spiritual powers, and a shift away from the social justice of the Torah. This is the the ground that Hosea is speaking into. Several hundred years of ups and downs as kings are either leading their people toward or away from faithfulness in Yahweh. Would you read with me Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 through 3? And real quick, I just want to say, I'm teaching out of the New Living Translation for Hosea. If you want to follow in your Bible, that's great. But if you'd like another one, there's a QR code. It's, It's a couple slides down. There's a QR code on the screen. It'll link you to the New Living Translation for all of our Hosea readings for today. This is Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, God said to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. And this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Dibliim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. So Hosea is a prophetic message to Israel, God's people. And Uh, Like we talked about last week, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Hosea are like an executive summary of the rest of the book. And in this, God is choosing to anchor the message to broader Israel to the specific life of Hosea the man. God is using Hosea's life to illustrate something bigger. So in this, Hosea represents God as the husband, the husband who's chosen to love and marry a woman knowing she will be unfaithful. God is saying, I am as God have chosen to marry a people knowing they will be unfaithful. Gomer then in this story is Hosea's wife, representing God's people, chosen, married. They actually then choose their desires over faithfulness to God. And as we're making our way through this series, we're, we're doing four weeks of, of teaching through Hosea. And we're following the four movements of Hosea's life. Last week was movement number one, that God asked Hosea to take a wife knowing she will be unfaithful. And that's what we looked at last week. God chooses to marry unfaithful people. And what does that mean? Uh, If you weren't here, you can go back on our podcast or website and listen in. This week, what we're looking at is the fact that Gomer is unfaithful. 
and we're looking at what is Israel's unfaithfulness and how do we understand our unfaithfulness as taught by Hosea. So last week, my primary point, if in one sentence, everything I was trying to communicate is this, that God views his relationship with his people as a marriage. This was the main point of last week. God views his relationship with his people as a marriage. This week, we're adding on this, one sentence, that our sins are more than legal wrongs. They are relational unfaithfulness. And relational unfaithfulness happens because of misplaced desires. When we look at Hosea's life, it's helpful to remember that Hosea the man is a story in history. It is not allegory or fiction. The reason that's important is the poignancy of Hosea's grief and his anger and his desires are diminished if we just talk about them as fable. If they're just a story with a lesson. This was a real man who lived through true suffering that taught him a deep knowledge of both God's pain and his desire. So in Hosea, when we read a large portion here in a minute, we might dismiss God as angry or possessive or whatever, but those of us in the room who've been through a situation like adultery understand and sympathize with the turbulent up and downs of it. If we put ourselves in Hosea's shoes, not as a concept, but as a lived reality of a man with his wife, this is painful. Waking up to an empty bed, not knowing where your spouse has spent the night. I personally weep at the thought of that and understand if I put myself actually in that position, God's language in Hosea chapter two is, I will leave you naked in the street. How could you do this to me? I understand this, the realness of that and give God space to feel that as well. And unfaithfulness is felt with the real sting of betrayal of marriage. Unfaithfulness, God experiences it with the real sting of betrayal and marriage. One of the authors I read in preparation from this named Derek Kidner says this, this approach is far from sentimental. It sharpens guilt immeasurably by making it the betrayal of love. It shows us the true motive of God's persistence, which is so easily thought to be mere doggedness or stubbornness, and it deepens our understanding of repentance and renewal for sins against love damage the very roots of a relationship and are not healed by brisk apologies and hasty resolutions. And the, the prophecy of Hosea to Israel came as correction for unfaithfulness. But notice this, God is speaking to Israel because he is faithful. Israel's been unfaithful and God could respond with being unfaithful back or being uncaring back and if that was real, he just wouldn't say anything. But God chooses to call out to his people because he's being faithful even in their unfaithfulness. And I want to read a large portion of Hosea to look at what was Israel's unfaithfulness. Now, in Hosea, God brings charges. 
he does this a couple times where he, he actually says, Israel, here's what I'm bringing against you. Here are my charges. And we're going to pick up in Hosea chapter 4. Would you go ahead and turn there? And we're going to read for quite a few minutes together now. Hosea chapter 4. And again, there's a QR if you want to follow in my translation, uh, or if you want to follow in your own, that's great too. Let me just pray for us real fast. Father, would you just please open up your word to us uh, as we read publicly your scripture? Would you help us understand the words as well as the heart and respond in faithfulness to you? Amen. Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There's no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and you break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There's violence everywhere, one murder after another. And that is why your whole land is in mourning and everyone is wasting away. Even the wild animals, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are disappearing. Now, don't point your finger at someone else to try to pass the blame. My complaint, notice, you priests, my complaint is with you. So you, my priests, will stumble in broad daylight. Your false prophets will fall with you in the night, and I will destroy Israel, your mother. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Since you priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Since you've forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. The more priests there are, the more they sin against me. They've exchanged the glory of God for the shame of idols. When the people bring their sin offerings, the priests get fed. So the priests are glad when the people sin. And what do the priests do? The people also do. So now I will punish both priests and people for their wicked deeds. They will eat and still be hungry. They will play the prostitute but gain nothing from it. They've deserted the Lord to worship other gods. Wine has robbed my people of their understanding. They ask a piece of wood for advice. They think a stick can tell them the future. Longing after idols has made them foolish. They've prayed the, played the prostitute, serving other gods and deserting their God. They offer sacrifices to idols on the mountaintops. They go up into the hills to burn incense in the pleasant shade of oak, poplars, and terebinth trees. That's why your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. But why should I punish them for their prostitution and adultery? For your men are doing the same thing, sinning with whores and shrine prostitutes. Oh, foolish people, you refuse to understand, so you'll be destroyed." Though you, Israel, are a prostitute, may Judah, the country to the south, not be guilty of such things. Don't join the false worship at Gilgal or Beth-Avon, and don't take oaths there in the Lord's name. Israel's stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, and so should the Lord feed her like a lamb in a lush pasture. Leave Israel alone, because she is married to idolatry. When the rulers of Israel finish their drinking, they go off to find some prostitutes. They love shame more than honor, and so a mighty wind will sweep them away, and their sacrifices to idols will bring them shame. Summary of chapter 4. We see that there's idol worship, corrupt priests that are benefiting from sin. There's religious hypocrisy and syncretism, which means the blending and the merging of religions. Israel is thinking that somehow they can offer sacrifices to Yahweh in the morning and worship Baal and Asherah in the afternoon, and they think that is compatible. We're going back in. You guys ready? (laughs) Chapter (gasps) 5. Here we go, chapter 5. Hear this, you priests, and pay attention, you leaders of Israel. Listen, you members of the royal family. So we've now shifted from priests to the royal family, the political leaders. 
Judgment has been handed down against you. You've led the people into a snare by worshiping the idols at Mizpah and Tabor. You've dug a deep pit to trap them at Acacia Grove. But I will settle with you for what you've done. I know what you're like, O Ephraim. You cannot hide yourself from me, O Israel. You've left me as a prostitute leaves her husband. You are utterly defiled. Your deeds, they won't let you return to your God. You're a prostitute through and through, and you do not know the Lord. The arrogance of Israel testifies against her. Israel and Ephraim will stumble under their load of guilt. Judah, too, will follow with them. When they come with their flocks and herds to offer sacrifices to the Lord, they won't find him because he has withdrawn from them. They've betrayed the honor of the Lord, bearing children that are not his. So now their false religion will devour them along with their wealth. Sound the alarm in Gebeah, blow the trumpet in Ramah, raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on into battle, O warriors of Benjamin. For one thing is certain, Israel, on your day of punishment, you will become a heap of rubble. The leaders of Judah, they've become like thieves, so I will pour my anger on them like a waterfall. The people of Israel will be crushed and broken by my judgment because they are determined to worship idols. I will destroy Israel as a moth consumes wood, and I will make Judah as weak as rotten wood. When Israel and Judah saw how sick they were, Israel turned to Assyria, to the great king there, but he could, not help, he could neither help nor cure them. So I will be like a lion to Israel, like a strong young lion to Judah, and I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off, and no one will be left to rescue them. Then I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me, for as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. One more quick pause as we explain that. Israel's political and national leaders, there's been a breakdown of that society into bloodthirsty selfishness, and they've put their trust of security into political alliances with unethical, idol-worshiping nations around them. Rather than trusting in their God for safety, they're trusting in idol-worshiping nations around them, their neighbors. And we see right at the end, God says this one line, as soon as their troubles come, they will earnestly search for me. And we have a small flicker of hope. Ready to dive back into chapter six? Here we go. They will say, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He's injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. Pause. They're calling on the faithfulness of God. And this is what God says in response. O Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Asked the Lord. Because your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. I want to show you love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. Gilead is a sinner, city of sinners, tracked with footprints of blood. Priests form bands of robbers, waiting in ambush for their victims. They murder travelers along the road to Shechem and practice every kind of sin. Yes, I've seen something horrible in Ephraim and Israel. My people are defiled by prostituting themselves with other gods. O oh, Judah, 
A harvest of punishment is also awaiting for you, though I wanted to restore the fortunes of my people. In summary, Hosea 6 is telling us that when God's people receive consequence, they come back and seek the Lord, and God says it's short and unlived. It's unrepentant repentance. In Hosea chapter 12, which we won't read, uh, it's towards the end of Hosea. God basically says to his people, it was like this when I knew you in Egypt. It was like this when you were just a family of Jacob. It was like this when you were here. It was like this. This is a long-standing story of my relationship with you, O people of Israel. But again, the bedrock of all of Hosea, though many of us are probably put on our heels by the intensity of this, the bedrock of the whole message is God reaching out in faithfulness. He wouldn't have written Hosea had he not cared. He's reaching out in faithfulness, and he has been patient, as Hosea 12 tells us, for a long, long time, calling them back repeatedly, being faithful the whole time. And here's what I believe Hosea is doing in this section. He's, by what God is doing through Hosea, he's applying the image of marriage in order to explain moral and societal decay as unfaithfulness. The reason your society is falling apart morally is because your worship and your loves are unfaithful. What God is saying, I believe in this, is he's saying that faithfulness leads to flourishing both of the individual self and of the whole society. Because God has designed the way to work, in, the world to work in a certain way. And when we are faithful to him in love, we follow his pattern for society, his pattern for justice and righteousness and families, and that leads to flourishing. But when we are unfaithful to him with our hearts and we become needy and greedy outwardly and we're no longer following his plan for the way the world works, that is called unfaithfulness and that is called sin and that leads to the decay of the individual self and of society. And the reason that God here is using faithful and unfaithful language is because sin is more than a legal and a moral wrong, though it is legal and moral. So God is giving more than a legal response to his people, and the situation needs more than a legal correction. God is showing us that sin is a wrong or disordered love or desire that is inside of us. Therefore, it has a relational root that prompts a relational response from God as he yearns for our relational restoration. He is asking to restore us more than just behavioral obedience or religious ceremony. He's asking to restore our love because that is the root of all faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Now, you might be asking, Trevor, are you really saying that Hosea is saying that my sin is like committing adultery? That is exactly what I am saying. Would you read with me the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, excuse me, James writes this to the church. He says, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that are at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. And yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. 
And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. This is written to the church. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he's placed in us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, humble yourselves before God. He gives grace. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. So as I make the point of sin does equal adultery, I feel it too. Like, this is kind of terrifying, right? And I feel, like, I feel bad internally, and I kind of want to, like, define it differently. But the reason I'm pushing the point here is because when we, when we acknowledge sin in that way, it's so helpful. It's so helpful because now we're actually talking about the problem. Now I can understand that it's a heart issue. It's where my loves and my faithfulness are. And now I can ask for grace because now I understand sin is beginning in my heart and then moving outwardly into the way my desires express themselves. Uh, I think many of us would quickly agree that stealing starts as coveting, right? Stealing starts as coveting. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that adultery starts as lust, murder starts as anger, right? The big point is that sins are rooted in our hearts and they are caused by disordered loves and desires. Disordered loves or desires. And I think all of us could pretty readily agree like Israel, Israel, like you're off the deep end, right? Your priests are making bands of robbers. Your political leaders are murdering each other. Like, yeah, unfaithfulness, bad, bad, bad news. But it's dangerous for us modern day to look at that, compare ourselves and then go, but it's okay, we're not doing that, right? Hopefully none of you are murdering your local kings. <laughs> But here's, here's my point in that. Our job is, is not to not do what they did. Because by that metric, most of us are probably winning. But our, our true job, our work is to pursue love and faithfulness to God. That is our work. All day long, every day. Pursue love and faithfulness to God no matter what the people or comparisons around us are doing. And my point that all sin is desiring something else above, notice this, desiring something above God. And I'm saying that really clearly because sin is not necessarily desiring things other than God. I think that would be a, a misconstruction of the way that God's made the world. When we desire things above him, the reason I say that is God has made an incredible world, right? An incredible, beautiful world, and it's meant to be loved and enjoyed, and our affections are meant to go outward into the world, to people and things and, and situations and sunsets. Our affections are meant to go outward. 
He's made our hearts to have strong desires, strong needs, strong passions, strong emotions. And so maturing in godly faithfulness does not mean having no desires, no needs, no passions, no emotions. That is cold, untouchable spirituality. That is not what God has designed. To mature in godly faithfulness means to tame and order our needs and our desires by attaching them to the right things in the right order according to the good design of God. Attaching our loves and our desires to the right things in the right order. That is what maturing in godliness means. And that will keep us having strong, healthy, good desires, wants, loves without sinning. So when we're willing to love him first, primary love of my whole life is God. My relationship with him then organizes my other loves, my other desires, and it shapes how I view those things working themselves out. And that is called faithfulness. When our first love is God himself, and then we faithfully follow him with the rest of our loves in the right ways. And if we do that, it will create flourishing of individual selves and of society. A helpful example is to think of the solar system, right? You've got the sun. If the sun is at its proper place in the middle of the solar system, all the rest of the planets do their beautiful ellipses without crashing into each other. Everything is properly ordered, in balance, flowing with seemingly a cosmic design, right? But if I try to redesign the solar system with the Earth at the middle, uh, that, that's called the Copernican Revolution because people realize you can't do that. Planets kind of blow up. It doesn't work. Um, and so that is a helpful example of what I'm trying to communicate. If I can apply that as proof to Israel in some of the situations we read through of where they might have had good desires that were, take, that were put into wrong priority and worked out in the wrong ways. Here's a couple of examples. Israel had a desire for security as a nation. That's a good thing, right? To be a secure nation. Now, unfortunately, rather than attach that to God as their first love and attach their love and desire for security to trust in him, they said, my need for security is so strong, I'm going to let my desire for security go above my love of God, and now I'm going to go and make political alliances with unethical, idol-worshipping nations around me. I so strongly desire to feel secure, I'm going to disorder my loves and desires and pursue this over God. That's Israel's worship, or excuse me, Israel's need for security. Israel, both its... its uh, Political leaders, as well as its individuals, as well as its priests, had a desire for wealth and prosperity. That's a good thing, right? To have abundance and, and, and the ability to be generous. Now, rather than attach that with trust and humility, do God first, and then where do I act out my needs and wants? They instead, the priests especially, were hypocritically profiting from the sins of the people and they were glad for it. They said, I have a desire for prosperity and I have some love for God, but I want prosperity more, so I'm going to pursue prosperity even in the way that we worship God. I'm going to abuse the sins of the people and be glad for sin so I can get more wealthy. Israel had a desire for power. It's good, right? To be strong, capable, powerful people. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But, God, but Israel, rather than saying, we're going to love God first and let him shape us into the power he wants in the ways and the time frames he gives it, they said, we want to be powerful. I want my spot on the throne, so I'm going to murder my cousin and take over. That was what was happening in the life of the Israelites. Israel desired to be at peace and to have the respect of the nations around them. That's a good thing, right? And they were willing to say, rather than attaching that to pursuit of God first, what else might come? They said, I desire to be at peace and have the respect of the nations around me, so I will take on their system of leadership. I will take on their system of worship. I will trade with them. I'll do whatever I need to to have peace and respect of the nations around me. And if we... And then that led to the blending of idol worship as well as cult prostitution and other things. Now again, um, many of us probably are not doing that degree of things, but I just want to give a few small examples that seem pertinent in my life that might be helpful for you. And how do we order our loves and desires? And how do our good desires that are disordered create sin and unfaithfulness? I have a little baby boy that was born four months ago. And so I'm just now beginning to think through like, what do I want my relationship with my son to be like? What sort of love and friendship do I want to cultivate with him? And as I think about that, I think that God has asked me as a husband, in God's design, he's asked my primary love in my family to be towards my wife, not my son. I'm supposed to love my son a heck of a lot, but my primary love is for my wife and then for my children. And if I do that, I believe my children will be able to receive more love than if I pursued their love first. Because when I exert effort to love my wife, that will create a healthy and a trusting partnership with my wife, and then my kids will experience a loving and united home life. If I'm pursuing first my spouse, my kids will receive more love in total. But if I want my kids to love me so badly that I flip-flop wife and kids, now my priority is to stay in connection with my kid over my wife. And the result of that will be a slow decay in the prioritization of my marriage. And eventually I'll be more united with my, wife, or with my child than I am with my spouse. And that will lead at best to a confusing parental partnership and it might possibly create a marriage that is not united and likely a home life that is confusing. Because I have a good desire to love my children for them to love me, but it needs to be rightly ordered under God's design, God, wife, kids. Now, again, God in all this, because I'm in relationship with him first, I follow his desires for how my desires should fall in line. I'm following his plan for how I should live as a husband in my home. And because I love him, I choose his design over my own design. Now, if I could give another example, just as a man, I think of the reality of so much of Hosea is about marital unfaithfulness. And so I think of the reality of what if I, I have an attractive coworker or neighbor or friend that's a female. Now, I have good God-given desires for sexuality and attention and pursuit, and all of those are good, good things that God's given me. But if I let those desires become my top desires, the likely reality is I will be unfaithful in my marriage. If my desire for sexuality and attention and pursuit are my top. But if I'm able to take those same exact desires and, and love God first and then orient those underneath the way that he's designed it, I believe it'd be possible for me to be in friendship with this 
person because my desires are below my loyalty and love for God. And his desire is that I'm first loyal and committed to my spouse. And I'm able to be loyal to my God and loyal to my spouse. And I'm able to order those desires for sexuality and attention and pursuit into the right outlets in the right way, in the right order, so it leads to a healthy and flourishing marriage rather than unfaithfulness. And that now creates a brand new environment that's no longer threatened by other people's attractiveness. I'm no longer threatened by other people's attractiveness because my desires are in the right place in the right order. And they're set that way because of love of God. I have one more final example. This has to do with the idea of self-medicating. Whatever that might be for you, if I personally am in pain for conflict, or if I'm in pain for whatever reason, relational conflict, um, my desire is to self-medicate. My desire is to numb out. My desire is to numb any, or avoid any feelings of pain. But if my love is centered on God, I'll be able to see how my self-medications hurt myself and the people around me. Now, unfortunately, this was me in Colorado, right? This was my four days of atheism with a hurt back in Colorado. When I was hurt, I had a desire to protect and comfort and numb, and that's not a wrong desire to receive comfort, to avoid pain, but I let that desire do this. And because I desired avoidance of pain and comfort more than anything else, I abandoned my loving relationship with God, I turned on the Wi-Fi, I, I numbed out with binge watching. And I wish I had a different pattern in that moment. And I am grateful that God continues to be faithful. And in that situation, if I look back and realize, like with 2020 vision, that in that same moment, same exact situation, I'm in pain, in a strange home, my wife's off at the farmer's market and I'm lonely. <laughs> um, if I had loved God's first and trusted Him to comfort me, Him to provide care, and I, then my desire to avoid pain could have been pretty low on that list. I have a healthy desire to avoid pain, but in this case, God is asking me not to numb. He's asking me to engage with him in relational connection so he can be my comfort. And in, if I'm ordered in the right way, I realize my desire to avoid pain can be low on that list and it might just be okay that I'm in pain, emotionally and physically. I'd rather be in pain and love my God than to numb out and be unfaithful. And I believe that Hosea teaches us two remedies for us when we catch ourselves being unfaithful. Hosea teaches two remedies for our misplaced and disordered loves and desires. Now, before we get into that, I just want to give you one quick question that I think is really helpful and liberating. Do I desire to be faithful to God? Do you desire to be faithful to God and to order your loves with him first and everything else in his order below that? The reason I'm asking this is if we're chasing this lesson and teaching with only a vague sense of guilt or church pressure, 
that will lead out to your burnout, not your flourishing. But possibly that question, do I desire to be faithful to God? Do I truthfully? Maybe that actually starts out as kind of a vague feeling, but the goal is for that to move towards specificity and move towards sincerity, where it's a genuine desire of your heart is to be faithful to God. And the very first place that that probably begins is wanting to want to be faithful. Another way of saying that is, I wish I wanted to be faithful. I don't, but I wish I did. I want to want to be faithful. God, would you help me want to want to be faithful? That will lead us helpfully and guide us maturely through what I believe Hosea teaches us two things. Number one, I believe Hosea teaches us we need to cut off our affairs. If we take sin and Hosea's message seriously, then our known sins are the equivalent of adulterous affairs and we need to cut them off. And cutting off an affair starts with confession. A confession to yourself, to God, and to others. We cannot end our own affairs by ourselves. We need to confess. Now, if we can take Hosea literally for a moment, I think there's a couple of questions Hosea might ask us. Do we have religious hypocrisy? Am I speaking the laws of God's kingdom, but am I living differently? I think Hosea would ask us, are we blending cultural ideas into Jesus' teaching? Are we creating a syncretism, a mishmash of God's teaching? I believe Hosea would ask, are we making agreements with political leaders that are unethical? Are we putting our desire for political security over our faithfulness to God? I think Hosea is asking, do we grasp for power, do we grasp for wealth, and do we grasp for pleasure? A man named John Owens has this famous line. He says, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If we are not killing sin, sin will be killing us. And because of that, we need to be willing to act incredibly severely. Jesus at one point kind of allegorically says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to end up without a hand and an eye in heaven than have your whole body in hell. We need to be willing to act severely. And just as a simple, like some of these questions are really big, major feeling sins, right? But I just want to bring it to the specifics of one of my friends from college. There's a group of us and we were struggling with pornography on and off and we we're trying to help each other and, it was, and we were all up and down. But my one friend, Joel, who I'll never forget, he took it more seriously than any of us. And, so, and he realized the time when he watched pornography was on his phone. So the dude like went out and he bought a flip phone. And he said, I'm giving up voice to text, I'm giving up Google Maps, I'm giving up smart text messages, I'm giving up all that, and I'm buying a flip phone, and I'm canceling the Wi-Fi in my house. And, that, and Joel took it seriously enough to inconvenience himself. And so my, my question for, for us is, are we willing to act severely with our sin? Are we willing to join the accountability group? Are we willing to get rid of the technology? Are we willing to like purge our house of the things? Are we willing to end the relationships? What is it that we need to do to act severely enough to cut off our affairs? If you'd like to learn more of some simple steps for this, the Gospel Coalition has a super article called John Owens, 
nine instructions for killing sin. John Owen's nine instructions for killing sin. It's real high level, real quick, but it might be helpful for you. Last thing I'll say on this is this starts with confession to yourself, to your trusted people, and to God. Start there. The gospel of Jesus is you have lots of grace. You're already covered. Let's do this together. Number two, how do we um, remedy our misplaced love and desires? Number two is that we rebuild a faithful love for God. I'm going to re-quote Kidner from the very beginning. I forgot a slide for this. You might need to go way back to the top. This is Kidner. He says this halfway through. He says, this understanding deepens our understanding of repentance and renewal for sins against love damage the very roots of relationship and they're not healed by brisk apologies and hasty resolutions. I read this because I want to highlight that we can lean into relationship building as part of our sanctification. We build relationship as our sanctification. Because if we're sinning, especially known sin, it's probably because we've fallen into roommate mode. We're in roommate mode with God. We've grown distant, grown cold, and feel like everything's fine, like Israel, while we're cold and disconnected at heart. And so my question as we kind of wrap up is how do we get our desires and our loves both back in order and rekindled, right? We can't just choose to love, though we can choose to try to love. And my my main thought for this is how do we rekindle our love? We remember how good our husband is. We remember how good Jesus is. We, we savor and remember the gospel because when we look at the gospel, we see how beautiful Jesus is. And when we see how beautiful he is, our affections naturally get attached to him over the things around us. So it starts first by asking, where are my desires disordered? Where do I feel that? And then we let the gospel win back our affection. And I want to read one final passage to us for those of us that feel the frustration of back and forth desires, ups and downs. Paul writes this in Romans 7. He says, I've discovered this principle in my life that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? And then he turns to the gospel. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. But because of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because we belong to him, the power of his life-giving spirit has freed us from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses, it was unable to save us because of our weakfulness and sinful nature. So God did what the law couldn't do. He sent his own son, in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so the just requirement of the law would be satisfied for us. So we no longer follow our sinful nature, but now follow the spirit. This is his crowning beauty. This is his crowning beauty. What do I do with myself? I'm all over the place, but thanks be to God. Jesus is my hope. Jesus has won me back. Jesus has adored me. Jesus has loved me. He's earned my affections. So I will be faithful to him. I will love him. 
The law could not save me. My willpower could not save me. So Jesus himself liberated me from sin and rescued me with his righteousness. So our hope is not in our own faithfulness. Our hope is that he will be faithful because he's already dealt with our consequences. And as we're wrapping up here, I want to give you one practical thing. Our, the Acts 29 conference that we went through had this really great panel discussion on how do you sustain marital intimacy in long-term ministry? Another way of saying that is how do you sustain long-term faithfulness? And one of the commentators just said this. Like, he jokingly said, date night is not a load-bearing wall. Date night is not a load-bearing wall in the structure of your marriage. It's great. Date night's great. But two hours a week cannot bear the weight of the structure of your marriage. And the reason I bring that up is it, it makes us ask, what is a load-bearing wall in my long-term faithfulness to Jesus? Because long-term faithfulness to God requires load-bearing walls. And if you're not sure if your lifestyle is a load-bearing wall, is it working? If it is, great. If not, how do we shore that structure up to create long-term faithfulness in your relationship with God? For me, really quickly, I need space and I need open-heartedness with God. So there's three things that I need. I need memorization of scripture because I need his truth in my mind and in my heart. I need Sabbath and I need margin. I need time to rest and enjoy God's world and attach that to love of him. And I need to reduce distractions in the margin of my life so I have space for emotional honesty with myself and with God. I need quiet minutes. Even if it's five or 15 minutes at a time, I need quiet, undistracted space so I can be honest with myself, with what I'm feeling and what I need, and then I can attach those needs to God. God, I'm hurting, I need comfort. I need you. I need space to attach that to him. Now, where I want to end is just this. Israel had real-life consequences for their unfaithfulness. Some of those were natural. Some of those were God-given. And there's some of the prophets in the Old Testament that anticipate consequence, and they warn, and they give caution. And there's other prophets like Hosea that come at the precipice of consequence. Consequence is already on the way, and this prophetic message is the pause before the storm. It's gonna hit. And Hosea is saying there is still hope for when the consequences come. And I bring that up because historical consequences, real life consequences will come for us. You might be getting warning far enough ahead of time to repent and change and become faithful to stop that storm and those consequences. But you might be on the precipice or you're already in the pain of the consequence. And Hosea's message is still for you that in the middle of your consequence, God is faithful and he is providing hope in the consequence. And Hosea's message to Israel was in history and it was also future looking because the bigger picture message of hope that God has for us is he's rescued us, his people, from the long-term consequence of sin and death. That consequence will not hit us because he's already taken care of it. And that is our hope here in the short term. 
Even if you are being disciplined right now, you're feeling consequence. He is shaping you. He will not abandon you. And he is faithful to you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you give justice and righteousness. Thank you that for as hard and challenging as your, your words in Hosea are, like what, what other kind of God would we worship if you were not opposing hypocrisy and murder and, and unethical behavior? Like what else could you do but speak brutally honest, calling your people back to faithfulness and flourishing? Thank you that we are a holy people set apart to be a new kind of priest, holy and loyal to you alone above everything else. Father, would you kindle our affections for you? Would you be our primary love? And even if you're not, would you help us to want you to be our primary love? Father, would you give us community and friends to work this out together, please? Draw us to long-term faithfulness. Amen.